2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Paul says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good in every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to spend our time tonight breaking this section down. And I want to tell you ahead of time, and we'll deal with it more at the very end, but just kind of help you with this. This is a tricky passage to kind of understand because Paul's lumping a whole lot of things all together. The suffering they're going through now and the afflictions they're going through now and the judgment that's going to be happening to people now and later and how God's going to reward. And some people are saying, is he talking here when he talks about him coming? Is he talking about the rapture? Is he talking about the second coming? We're going to get into all that. But understand that as Paul is mainly bringing out the point that God knows what they're going through and their suffering is proof that they have been chosen and worthy of his calling. He's also keep reminding them that, look, hang on, God's going to deal with all those who are against you and against him when it's time in his own way. Leave the timing of God dealing with everything to God. That's pretty much the summation of what it is. But there's so many things in here that I want to kind of encourage you with and also challenge. I don't know who's watching right now. If you don't know Jesus, please pay close attention to what we're going to look at tonight because there's some severe warnings as to what is yet to come for those who reject the gospel. We left off last week looking at our unworthiness, but how God is the one who makes us worthy of his kingdom and his salvation by his grace. And when it talks about his kingdom here in this section, he's talking about salvation more than the kingdom to come on the earth, which is coming. But mainly this, he's talking about salvation. Now, the ones who have been made worthy are the ones who respond to God's offer of salvation through faith alone in Jesus's work on the cross and no longer live for themselves but for the one who died for them. I'm going to say this to you again, and we're going to lay this out from Scripture, and I want you to look closely at how the Bible kind of ties those two things together, those many things together. Those who have responded in faith, in just faith alone in Jesus' sinless life, through His punishment and His death on your behalf, His resurrection from the dead, and they, they believe that they and trust that they're going to heaven not because of anything they've done, but because of the gift of God. Those are the ones who are declared worthy to be given this salvation, all right? But at the same time, I know a lot of people that say, well, I believe in Jesus, but their lives show no evidence of the fact that they have surrendered their lives to Jesus. They say, hey, take me to heaven, I'll live my life here between now and then. And the Bible actually says that those of us who have truly been declared worthy, now don't just say, I know I'm going to heaven when I die, but they live their lives here now, no longer for themselves, but for the one who died for them. When you gave Jesus your life, you either gave him your life now, because you want to be saved now, don't you? You want to be declared righteous now. 
You didn't say, well, I'll give it to you when, when you get to heaven. No, you gave him your life now. And if you're not willing to give him your life now, you're not going to be one of those people who are going to be in heaven. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me just let the scripture say it instead of me trying to say it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 15. In 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 15, it says this, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. A lot of times we see the, the term servant in the Bible, but actually the real Greek word is slave. James described himself as a slave of Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you as we look at being worthy and being declared worthy and made worthy. It's a life attitude that says my life is in my and my salvation is in Jesus and my everyday life is in him as well. Now, we daily are going to choose whether or not we're going to yield to the spirit of God that saved us and is within us. And that's a whole part of the process of sanctification. But we should have an ultimate attitude that says I'm not living for me anymore. Now, are there days that you try to live for yourself? Yeah. Uh, is your flesh wanting to live for self? Yes. And that's a process that God's going to teach us how to walk with him. But ultimately, our attitude should be, my life is the Lord Jesus. I didn't just give him my eternity. I give him my life now. And that's the difference between those who have truly believed and those who say they believe. That's why in John chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it talks, don't turn there because of time, but it talks about how when the people saw the works that he did, the mighty works, many believed in his name. And this next verse says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men and he didn't need man to give testimony about man because he knew what was in men. In other words, they believed, but he knew it wasn't real. They weren't willing to forsake all and give him their life. There's a lot of people that say, well, I believe Jesus is going to take care of me. Well, have you given him your life today? Have you surrendered to him? Now, again, we don't do that perfectly, but that's the good news of salvation, that he begins it, he finishes it. But go to Matthew chapter 22. Let's look at this word worthy and how it's actually in the scriptures quite a bit. In Matthew chapter 22, look at verses 1 through 14. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the, the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few 
are chosen. Now, we don't have time to break this full parable down. And let me just make a quick commercial. If you haven't had the opportunity to sign up for our Bible cruise coming up in October, please go to our website and do so, because I'm going to be teaching on the parables of Jesus. The theme for the Bible cruise is, what is God trying to tell us? And parables are stories that Jesus made up to teach a point. Each parable is teaching a point. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people try to take parables and make every little thing represent something, and you're going to mess yourself up trying to do that, because in one parable, leaven is going to represent sin, and another one is going to represent the power of something good to spread, and be careful about trying to break parables down. But I'm going to be teaching on the parables of Jesus on that cruise. But in this parable, he's talking about this wedding feast that the master has, and he's inviting certain people, and they've been invited, but they don't come. They're not wanting to come. They had a choice, and they were invited many times. But when they rejected it, he said, they're not worthy. And then he says, go out into the highways and the byways. We now know from studying the scriptures, he's talking about the Jews, how in John chapter 1, he, Jesus came to those who were his own people, but his own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him. Those of us who weren't even looking for him, we got to become children of God. And you notice how he invites in the good and the bad. It doesn't matter how you've lived your life, you're invited and you're called. But here's the deal. Then there came a guy who was in, and he wasn't wearing a wedding garment. A lot of people don't understand what that means. Well, back in this day, when the master invited you to the wedding, you, when you were invited and you showed up, you were given a robe that showed that you were welcome guest, and it represented that you were there because of the master. Well, a guy decides, I want to go, but I don't need the master's robe. I, my, my own clothes are good enough, if you will. And there's a lot of people that think they're good enough to get to heaven. And Jesus in this parable says, no. Many are called, but only few are chosen. Who are the ones that are chosen? Who are the ones that are worthy? They're the ones that humble themselves, who respond to the invitation, and they do it because of his righteousness, his clothing, if you will, not anything we bring to the table. Now, go to Matthew chapter 10. Look at verses 11 through 15. Matthew 10, verses 11 through 15. And he's sending his disciples out two by two, and he says, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So he's now sending his disciples out. He says, when you go into a town, look for those who are worthy. And if they're not worthy, move on. Well, again, what makes somebody worthy? How do we recognize worthy? Let me give you the definition again. Worthy people are the ones who have responded by faith in the uh, saying yes to the offer of salvation, which is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Not any other way. And if they're willing to submit to the conditions, if you will, that God has put on his salvation, they're de declared worthy. If they're not willing to submit to the terms and the conditions that God has preordained before the foundation of the world, they're not worthy. You're worthy by hum humbly submitting to God's offer and God's plan, and he declares you worthy. And as we're going to see a little later, he's the one who makes us worthy Go to Revelation chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 4. In 
In Revelation chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 4. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen and restrengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I'll come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are what? They're worthy. Again, worthiness is not tied to how good you are. He invited the good and the bad. Worthiness is determined by whether or not we humbly submit to God's preordained terms for salvation, which is, I can't save myself. I only can be given it as a gift. Jesus is the only one that lived the sinless life. Jesus was punished on my behalf. I believe he rose from the dead and he is my Lord. He's the only way I'll be made right. And when we respond to that offer of salvation, he makes us worthy. And anybody here worthy of salvation? Now, this is going to be a tricky one. I know this is going to be hard for you, but I want to, I want to ask you, with it, raise your hands if you can. How many people here are worthy of salvation? I hope everyone raises their hand, because if we're worthy, I'm going to ask you this next question. Did you make yourself worthy, or did he make yourself worthy? All right, let me ask you again. How many people here are worthy of salvation? I only raise my hand because he's made me worthy. I am worthy, but not because of me. That's why we had trouble raising our hands, didn't we? Because we feel unworthy. That's great. I feel unworthy, but I'm worthy because he's declared me worthy. He's made me worthy. The moment I start thinking I'm worthy because of me, I got a problem. I'm not in that worthy category. You understand? Go ahead. Just see you raising your hand there. But the thief on the cross is the ultimate, like... The on the cross is one of the greatest examples of he did nothing to become worthy, but he did submit and humble himself. Which is what he calls us to do. And that's all. That's what makes us worthy. That's why when they would go into a town, they're looking for people. You share the message, you scatter the seed, but you look for those who are going to respond with a humble. It's Jesus and not me. They're worthy. If they don't want to respond in that way. Yeah, we've been taught to sit there and hammer them because we've been taught to get converts and count track, keep track of how many baptisms we've been having and all this stuff. And we wonder why our churches are full of rocky soil and thorny soil Christians. It's because we've been taught to go produce the fruit when the Bible says all we're to do is scatter the seed and let God do what he's going to do. One plants, another waters. It's God who produces the increase. Go to Acts 13. Here's where it gets really tricky. Stick with me here because we're about to move into a realm where we have to say, no one understands this. And if anybody says they do, run. Don't listen to them. Acts chapter 13. Look at verses 42 through 48. As they went out, people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Paul and his buddies had been preaching in a synagogue. And people are responding pretty coolly. They're curious about it. They're, they're wanting to know more. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, listen, urged them to continue in the grace of God. There, he says, look, you got a responsibility here. I see that you're responding. No one comes to the Father. John chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 44. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. 
And yet these people are curious. They're responding. They're wanting to know more. It's obvious God's spirit is at work, beginning his work of preparing the hearts. And so Paul says he urged them, continue in the grace of God. In other words, God's working on you right now. You have a responsibility to respond appropriately. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, talking about the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that wild? Paul says, God's doing a work and you have a responsibility to, to, to stay in it. Continue in the grace of God. Yet, when they did believe, who got all the credit? God. And those who were appointed to eternal life believe. Folks, I don't know how this works together. And if anybody says they do, they're lying to you. In John chapter 3, I think it's verse 8, Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. This salvation is God's thing. And if anybody believes, it's because God gave them the grace. Yet at the same time, the Bible teaches that everybody has an opportunity and everybody will be held accountable for whether or not they responded appropriately to God's offer. It's done by Him, yet we're responsible. Some people hear more than others, and God will judge them according to how much light they've received. But it's not our job to figure that all out. We let God be God. And if he wants to go and chase Paul down and knock him off his horse and blind him and to hear a voice and get him saved that way, yet others have to just hear a little bit here or a little bit there. God gets to be God. This is his work. But God, if you're worthy, it's because God's made you worthy. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people. There are those that believe that some people never have an opportunity. No, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. Everyone will be held accountable for whether or not they responded appropriately if they've judged themselves unworthy. Then they're unworthy by how the, because they didn't respond appropriately. So how do we become worthy of salvation and God making us worthy? Humility, repentance, childlike faith. We don't trust in anything that we have or do, but simply come to him for everything. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to who? The humble. For by what you have been saved? Grace. Grace is given to who? The humble. Go to Matthew 11. We've looked at this before, but I want you to see it again. Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen closely. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things, this spiritual truth, from the smart people. Because that would have, if it was only the smart people that were able to get salvation or understand salvation, that would leave a lot of us out. Right, John? You took that well. Thank you. But here's the deal. I'm in the same category with you. But, but let me say this to you. But his, his will is to reveal it even to little children. That's his gracious will. You don't have to be the smartest in the room. You don't have to finish school. You don't have to have the ability to figure it out. You just humble yourself and say, Lord, I want to believe. Lord, I want to understand. Lord, I want to be saved. And you humble yourself like a child. God then gives you the grace. Jesus said, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And then he said this, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Oh, Lord, is he there, Jim? The Lord determines who he reveals and who he doesn't. Yes, he does choose who he reveals, but he offers open to everyone, but he will only reveal himself to who? The humble, the repentant, those with childlike faith, those who say, if I understand your word correctly, Lord, the only way I can be saved is if you give it to me. I know too many people, even people that claim to be Christians, when I ask them in churches as I travel around, I'll ask the people, hey, do you know you're going to heaven when you die? And a lot of times I'll hear, I hope so. And I'm saying, well, how do you hope so when the Bible says very clearly in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that, that we know that we have eternal life? They say, well, I'm, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to live a good life. Do you understand how they're mixing their faith with themselves as well with their works? That's not childlike faith. I can look you in the eye and tell you I'm going to heaven. It has nothing to do with how many years I've preached or how much I've studied the Bible. I'm going to heaven because in 1973 at eight years old when I didn't even understand half the stuff I do now. And the more stuff I understand now, I realize I don't know anything. At eight years old in 1973 in a little gymnasium in New Hampshire, I said, Lord, you're wanting me to not just know about these Bible stories, but to do something about it. And I got up and walked down an aisle in a gymnasium where an evangelistic rally was happening, and I gave my life to Lord Jesus. From that point on, he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory from me walking down the aisle. Because to be honest with you, I literally felt like someone was shoving me down the aisle at eight years old. In and of ourselves, we're not worthy of salvation. But God will make us worthy and declare us worthy if we ask him to by his grace, his mercy, and his power. Go to John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. It's going to sound a little bit like the parable we read in Matthew 22. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, this is the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We all can quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let's do it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, 
not of works, so that no one can boast. Those who have been made worthy and declared worthy are the ones who humble themselves with childlike faith and believe what God has said, and they don't add anything to it, and they just receive it. By the way, this is why if anyone perseveres in steadfast faith in this wicked world, it's God who gets the glory. It's because he has made us worthy. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who has begun the good work will bring it to completion. If you're hanging on in the midst of this wicked world in faith, you don't get a pat on the back. It's evidence of your salvation. Go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 again. Look at verse 5. Actually, let's go to verse, verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Now jump down to verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul said we brag about you and we boast on you, we're really not bragging on you. When we tell everybody else about your response to the suffering you're going through and the fact that you're persevering in your faith, you don't care about the loss of your property. You don't care about the loss of your position and prestige. You don't care about the loss of your income and your jobs because of your faith. The fact that you are continuing and just saying, hey, if I die, I die. I go be with the Lord. I'm living for that life, not this one. When we brag on you, we're actually bragging on God because this is evidence that what you have is real. Satan was going to use trial to show who's real and who's not. God says, that's good. That's my plan, too. I'm going to use the trials to show who's real and who's not. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 23 and 24. Paul said, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Isn't that encouraging? I'm going to say it until I die. Please stop telling me when I ask, how are you doing? Hanging in there. It's everything in me to keep from preaching 17 sermons to you at that moment. It happened again this past week. I saw a Christian friend. How you doing? And he was in a hallway of a church. And he's working at a church. How you doing? And he said, hanging in there. And the Lord said, just keep walking. God does not give us his Holy Spirit so that we can do the best we can. I always want to say every time someone's hanging in there, I say, by your hands or your neck. It's God. If we're hanging in there, there's something wrong here. Our focus should be on the Lord. Things are tough, but by God's grace, 
I'm in a time of trial, but by God's grace. Do you understand? I'm not poo-pooing the fact that it's hard. I'm not thinking that you should ever see me say, put on a fake face and, hey, I'm doing really good because I don't want you to preach 17 sermons to me. No, but at the same time, and I need this reminder myself, when life gets a little chaotic, I have a tendency to focus on the chaotic. Instead of giving glory to the Lord, who will walk us through it? Go to John chapter 3. Let's read a very familiar passage, but in a new light. John chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 16. I, I have no problem with this verse being held up at a football game, but Jesus didn't say it for that purpose. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him, let's back up again, God so loved who? Wait a minute, did he only love the ones who were going to be saved? No, Jesus died for everyone. 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, but not only our sins, but also for the sins of the entire world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's going to be important later on. For God did not send his son into the world, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Do you see it? You have a choice. Jesus died for everyone. But a lot of you are not responding to this gospel. We're not responding in the worthy manner because of the fact that you know you're a sinner and you don't want to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You don't want to acknowledge that you need a savior. Some of you say, well, I got no problem acknowledging I'm a sinner. I just don't think I'm that bad of a sinner. Well, then you're not worthy yet because you don't understand the seriousness of your sin. But for those of us who say, I'm willing to say, if I'm going to be saved, it's not because I'm a good person. It's because Jesus did it all. We then will be given eternal life. And those who don't believe in Jesus because they don't think they really need Jesus, they're condemned already because they haven't believed in Jesus. And for those of us who do come to the light, who gets all the glory when we do? He does. Because if you understand the Gospels, if you understand the Scriptures, you wouldn't even have ever looked for Him without Him at least beginning the work to call you. You wouldn't even have begun to even seek a need of a Savior without him opening your eyes first. But as much as there is good news for those whom God has made worthy of this future reward, there's also a severe judgment coming for those who rejected God's offer of salvation and deemed themselves unworthy. Go back to 2 Thessalonians now and look at verses 6 through 10. 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 6 through 10. We've just looked at how the, the, our continuance in the faith is evidence of our right, God's righteous judgment that he's declared us worthy. But look at verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, 
and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of God, of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So here he says, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well to us. But he doesn't say that he's going to do it here, does he? No, when he comes and he's revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord. And then so look closely at what Paul's talking about here. God, when he, Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom at the end of the tribulation period, this is not the rapture he's talking about. He's coming in flaming fire and vengeance. He's not going to do that when he comes gather his church. I'm going to tell you in just a second. That, well, I'll tell you now, and then we'll come back to this vengeance thing. We're going to deal with when we come back in a few weeks. Again, I'm going to be gone for the next two weeks. But when we come back together, we're going to really start breaking down chapter 2, where they were concerned that they had missed the day of the Lord, because Paul had clearly, and I'm going to show you that next time we get together, Paul had clearly taught them that the church was going to be removed before the day of the Lord, yet they were going through such severe suffering that they were being told, and people were convincing them, that the day of the Lord's already begun, and they had missed the rapture, or there wasn't going to be one. And so we're going to deal with that when we come back, but for tonight, understand what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you're going through suffering right now. And the fact that you're continuing in the faith is evidence of your salvation and you've been declared worthy. And God is just. He's a very just God and he, he can, keeps track of everything. And he's going to deal with those people when he comes back. He's going to reward those of us who are going through suffering at that time as well. But what Paul's saying is, leave the fixing and making it all right to the Lord in his time. He gets to do it how he wants and when he wants. If a lot of us were God, and thank God we're not, Paul would have never had a chance to be saved. Would you not agree that if you had control, you wouldn't have let Paul get to the Damascus road? He was putting Christians to death and having them put in prison. And if you had the power and the authority to determine who's in and who's out, you would have said, oh, I want that guy taken off the map. But God in his mercy, in order to display for his own glory that he is willing to take the chief of sinners and give them salvation, chose to let Paul live and he even gave him eternal life. But Paul's also saying that there are going to be those who don't believe and God's going to deal with them in time. You stop worrying about whether or not the right is righted and the wrongs are dealt with. Leave that to the Lord. And again, a lot of us as Christians, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for our leadership. The Bible talks about that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek to the betterment of mankind. But at the same time, if what is behind all of that is this mindset of we're going to get the rights, or the wrongs righted and everything taken care of here, you're living for the wrong place. God says, I'm going to take care of all that, and I'm just, and I'll deal with it in time. 
Write it down, look at it later on. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it describes God very, very clearly that he is just. He's righteous and he's just. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. But look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 11. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now listen closely. Paul here is saying the same thing. There's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a day of settling all accounts. He comes and his reward or his recompense is with him. And we need to leave that to the Lord. But as a Christian, though, hopefully... I've had this attitude myself, unfortunately, a few times. We don't read that and say, boy, I hope that day of judgment comes from tomorrow. Because we're in that time period where God in his mercy, in his forbearance, is looking over former sins. Why? So that we too, like Paul, would have an opportunity to be, to be saved. And if your attitude as a believer in this life is, Lord, get them. You don't have the heart of the Father because the reason he hasn't come back and gotten them yet is because he's not willing any to perish, but to give a people an opportunity to be saved. But when that day comes, he will be fair. Those who have had great opportunity will be judged in greater strictness. Those who have had less of an opportunity will be judged accordingly. But leave the timing of the return of Jesus, the rapture, the second coming, the tribulation. Leave that to the Lord because that's in his hands and he's the one going to deal with it. And the moment we start trying to think, well, man, I'd like it to happen tomorrow. I sure like this, the judgment of God to come. And man, there's some people I'd hope are on the front of that list because I want God to deal with them before he gets tired. And, and, and when we have that kind of a mindset, it shows we really don't have the heart of the father. Because right now, we're not in the time period during the tribulation when the souls under the altar say, how long until you avenge our blood? We're still in the time period of, of, of uh, Stephen who would say as he's being killed, Lord, don't hold this against them. And so I pray that you're praying for our leadership and government, not that God would bring judgment, but that God would open their eyes, that they would respond while they have the opportunity. And if they reject it, God will deal with them. And he'll be just. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 7. 
Paul says, I'm sorry, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. When we go into the book of uh, Genesis in our next study in a few weeks or a month or so, we're going to be looking at that. The, er the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished in the great flood, as we all know. But by the same Word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the high heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God has a reason why he hasn't brought the day of the Lord yet. And that's his patience. But that day, by the way, has already been set. I don't know if you know that or not. But in Acts 17, verse 31, Paul's talking to the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And he says this, God has already set the day of judgment. It's not waiting on anything. It's set. It's all in motion. And then Paul, Paul then goes on and says, and he's given proof of who he's going to use to judge the world by raising that man from the dead. I hope you hear me. When you stand before God, you're not going to stand before the Father. You're going to stand before the Son. John chapter 5, verse 22 says this, The Father judges no one, but has handed all judgment over to the Son. How many people do you talk to today that say, when I stand before God the Father, when I stand before the big man upstairs, he's going to weigh my good and my bad, and I always stop him and say, you already think you're standing before the Father. You won't. You'll be standing before Jesus. And he's not going to weigh your good and your bad. He's not going to weigh the things that you've done, because Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, around verse 21, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? And I'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. The determination that Jesus uses whether or not we get to heaven or not is not how good we've been. It's whether or not we have a relationship with him, which is by faith. There's a day of judgment coming. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verses 26 through 31. Do you want to know the right heart you need to have? Don't think of your enemies right now or the politicians you disagree with when you hear about the judgment to come. Think about family members. How do you feel now when all of a sudden you think of family members who are on the outside of the kingdom? That's the heart we should have toward everyone. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. 
For if we go on sinning deliberately, this is rejecting Jesus, by the way, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Wait a minute. Did that guy get saved and lose his salvation? No. Jesus died for the world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, be reconciled to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of the world. I know that makes some people angry with me when they hear me say it, but the whole of Scripture shows Jesus died for everyone. Your sins have been paid for. If you reject that, you've trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, which sanctifies you. Folks, if people died on the testimony of two or three witnesses under the law of Moses, how much worse do you think the punishment's going to be for those who rejected Jesus and had their eyes open to what he's done for them and thumbed their nose at it? That's why. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following, at the great white throne judgment, at the final judgment of all the wicked dead, at the end of the millennial kingdom and everything, they're all coming up out of Hades and everywhere that they've been stored for this final judgment. Everything they've ever done that was written down in the books was recorded, and they were judged according to that. And then God opens the Lamb's book of life, and because their name wasn't written in that book, they're cast into the lake of fire. They're cast into the lake of fire because they rejected Jesus. The things they had done in the books are all going to determine how hot of the fire, if you will, or how severe the punishment. But don't miss this. Their punishment in hell will not only be furious, it'll be eternal. Go back to 2 Thessalonians. Let's look at verse 6 again. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of what? Eternal destruction. Do you believe that you have eternal life? Will there come an end to your eternal life? There is no end to eternal punishment. There are those who try to say, well, they'll suffer for a while if there really is a hell. They'll suffer for a while and then they'll be extinguished or annihilated. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus himself said that hell is a place where the fire is not quenched and the worm doesn't even die. These people will be in fiery torment for eternity. And God is saving this for those who reject him. And he's going to be righteous and right and just to do it. But you know why? Because they have had an opportunity and they judged themselves not worthy. They rejected it. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 4. 
I, I say this in, in, a, in a good way, but I love the somberness that's coming across the room now. That means we're getting it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Again, this, the message that was brought by the angels is the law and the old covenant. We should not take this lightly. Uh, we're in trouble if we neglect such a great salvation. And Paul tells the people in Thessalonica, look, your suffering is because you're a follower of Jesus. And it's also the fact that you're sticking with faith, evidence of the fact that you've been declared worthy. And God's going to afflict those who afflict you. And he's going to reward those who are ready, need to be and going to be rewarded when that day comes that he comes to judge the world. In flaming fire. Now, the Bible tells us, and we're going to get into that when we get back together in a few weeks, that the day of the Lord is going to come. And when it comes, it is a time of judgment, wrath. We're going to look at some stuff that's going to make you go, how could anybody survive that on the earth? The Bible says if Jesus doesn't cut those days short, no one will. Let's wrap up. As we wrap up this section of verses and prepare to move on to chapter 2 and Paul's continued teaching to the Thessalonians about the day of the Lord, we must note, like I've been touching on, that the day of the Lord is a time of what? Judgment and wrath. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verses 1 through 9. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. I can't wait to get to chapter 2 and we start breaking down the day of the Lord. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us be, keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love for a helmet, of hope, and, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you were doing. As we're going to see... The people had, who had been taught by Paul about the return of Jesus and the end times, and we call it eschatology, the last things, that he had taught them clearly that before the day of the Lord, Jesus is going to come and gather his bride, take us to be with him, and the day of the Lord is going to come on the earth. But the world's going to be caught by surprise when that happens, and they're going to think everything's fine, and we're, we, we're living in peace and security, and then boom, the day of the Lord's going to come. But that day's not to surprise us. But it's a day of what? It's a day of wrath. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. God hasn't destined us for wrath. 
Look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we get back together in a couple of weeks, I'm going to lay out for you why the people were concerned and why Paul had to write Second Thessalonians because those who were saying the day of the Lord had already come and there had seemed to be a letter from Paul saying that the day of the Lord had already come and people are trying to convince them that we're in the tribulation period, we're in the day of the Lord. And I'm going to show you that there are people trying to say that today in different ways. And I'm going to show you scripturally how that's not the case. And Paul lays that out as well. And we're going to look at a whole of scripture to deal with that. Some are confused, though, by Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, when he talks about Jesus as being marveled at by all who believed and glorified in his saints. And they try to put the rapture here. It's a different thing here, as you see, that Jesus is coming in wrath with his mighty angels to inflict vengeance on the unbelievers, the saints. And the, and the believers that are mentioned here at that time are the tribulation saints. And we'll lay this all out when it comes time. But let's close tonight with Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Here is the return of Jesus to the earth, not in the clouds, but to the earth in wrath. Listen to Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. And I love how... They make no, they leave no doubt as to who this is. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He is a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies, the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. To eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered to make war against him was sitting on the horse and against his army. And then, of course, after that, the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire. Folks, when Jesus comes back to the earth, he's coming in vengeance. He's coming covered in blood. We get time for one more passage. Go to Isaiah 63. We always have more time for one more passage. Go to Isaiah 63. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Way back in Isaiah, God gave us a picture of Jesus' second coming. Now he says, wait a minute, I had no one to help me. Isn't Jesus coming with all these mighty saints and angels? Um, by the way, we read in Revelation 19, how are they dressed? White robes. Is there any blood on them? He's doing it all himself. He's actually done it all himself. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who created us. He's the one who designed this salvation. He's the one who's given us the ability to choose. But he's the one who sought us and drew us to even be able to respond to him. He's the one who gives us the faith. He's the one who keeps us. He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who does the work so that when we are glorified, all we can do is take the crown off and say, I don't deserve this. You did it. Anything you reward me for, it wasn't done by me. It was done by you. And when he comes to judge the earth, he doesn't say, look at the army I got with me. He deals with that himself as well because he don't need nobody. And stop thinking he needs you. He just wants us. He just wants us to say, Lord, my life is yours. Whatever that looks like today, may it be. Lord, my life is yours. Whatever that looks like today, may it be. I love you. And Lord willing, we'll be here in three weeks. We'll see you then.